what's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. I am Pat Sheen, my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, you ready for two jokers, dude? <laughs> you ready for it? Well, I don't think my opinion matters too much because we're probably getting two jokers, but uh, no? No? Yeah, I have some weird feelings about it. We're going to talk about it more. We have a lot to jump into this week. We got Joaquin Phoenix rumored to be the next Joker. We're going to be talking the Venom trailer, Black Panther soundtrack. MGMT, I, Tanya, end of the fucking world. We got so much to get through. So let's just jump right in. Joaquin Phoenix, rumored to be cast in a standalone Joker movie that'll be co-written and directed by Todd Phillips. And it's supposed to be part of like a DC movie project, or I don't even know, like Lane, I guess, where it's going to be like one-off movies. And Jared Leto's still going to be the Joker in the Suicide Squad and the Harley Quinn movie. What do you think about this move? This banner was announced or, you know, acknowledged when the report came out that Todd Phillips was working on this DC adjacent Joker movie. So it's like a separate banner that's supposed to encourage unusual angles and not focus on the main DCEU continuity, right? That's the thought, which makes sense. And I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to get filmmakers in, not really tell them what to do at all and just say, hey, you saw what Christopher Nolan did, right? Do that <laughs> with anyone you want. So I, 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 that's, I guess, like the pie in the sky pitch. But in the meantime, that presents the fact that there might be more than one Joker, which I think is, you know, kind of questionable because this movie might be an origin story for the Joker, and that's something nobody wants or needs. No one asks for that origin story. You don't need to know it. You don't need to spell it out. The best Joker origin story was the three of them that Heath Ledger gave you in The Dark Knight. Yep. You didn't know which one was which. You know, that, that works fine. Exactly. So having the Joker be a leading man, presumably, similar to Venom, which we're going to get to, I don't know if that's the best idea for a storytelling perspective. And then, like you said, that also presents the fact that we already have a Joker in this universe, or connected somewhat, you know, it's still DC, still active mm-hmm. Joker with Jared Leto. And Jared Leto's Joker is not going to just be cast off. He's going to be back for probably Suicide Squad 2, that Harley and Quinn slash Joker movie that is apparently different from the Gotham City Siren slash Birds of Prey Harley Quinn movie. So that's three possibilities right there. On one hand, I think trying to pave your own lane with these universe adjacent movies is kind of ambitious and commendable for DC, given the standing that they're in. But on the other hand, they're also still kind of struggling after we saw a Justice League, and they have a lot of there a lot of work cut out for them. Let's not count any chickens with these extra projects. I don't know. It, it's a tough situation. I think, like you said, I commend them for trying to do something different in DC talked about justice league was a pretty good effort for them considering all the problems that it had and wonder woman obviously was a big hit for them but overall that dc's you know get their their plan getting off the ground hasn't been so smooth suicide squad was a, just abomination and to be bringing in something that now you're gonna have two jokers when one is more than enough <laughs> you know especially when you have one that's played the way jared leto played him which i mean it, it's his own take on the role and i i give him credit for trying to do something unique and different but Joaquin Phoenix, I have a feeling, is going to be more more Heath Ledger-like than Jared Leto-like. So then you have two completely different, but the same character in, in the same universe or of, of movies, which is confusing. One thing I, I found interesting when I was reading about this, though, apparently Leonardo DiCaprio was approached to, to play this first. What do you think about that? Would he have been a good Joker? I mean, that's just a heat check from Todd Phillips. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, let me see what happens. Nothing matters if he says no, so let me see. I don't know. You know, that's interesting. He is a very, you know, method guy. Mm-hmm. He does get into his roles, especially, you know, late career. Yeah. I definitely think he'd do it. It's just interesting to think about. Actually, the fact that Phoenix is doing it, 
which I, I definitely think he would be really good given the kind of actor he is. But it's interesting because he previously turned down Lex Luthor mm-hmm. in Batman vs Superman, and also before that, uh, Doctor Strange, the title role. So you know, I, this project, if they do actually go through with it, again, it's not actually greenlit yet. Todd Phillips is just getting it ready. It clearly must be very different and uh, as not continuity focused as they're saying it is because Phoenix actually said yes. So, you know, I guess that is a positive sign. But again, it, it, this this whole thing, until DC actually gets their messaging right, and they actually acknowledge which of these movies are really happening and you know, actually give us an extended release calendar, it's going to be continue to be confusing. Yeah, and also just thinking about Joaquin Phoenix as an origin Joker, it's like, are you going to be telling the story of, of Joker, how he became him with an older actor? I don't know. It's right, yeah, he's in his 40s, right? A little confusing. Yeah, Jerry Leto, I think, is definitely younger than him. Yep. Very strange. We Obviously, we need more details, but I think we're cautiously pessimistic about this. But something that I'm actually kind of hyped for, Venom. The trailer came out. Venom, I think, is an interesting project because you have a really big star. You have Tom Hardy. And you have a beloved, was he like a villain, I guess? <laughs> kind he's of, a villain. But I think he'll be an anti-hero in this installment, but he's right. traditionally a Spider-Man villain through and through. But one that's probably, has like a cult following, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, he's very popular, no doubt. And then you see this trailer and you don't even see Venom. And you get to see Tom Hardy's face, which is the first time I think people have actually seen Tom Hardy's face in a, on a movie screen completely since, since he played Bronson or something like that. And... He, he's wilding out in this trailer. It's, it looks like it's shot stylistically. I'm hyped for Venom, and I think them slow playing this trailer makes a lot of sense, especially because if they don't get the CGI right on this, this thing could tank. At the end of the day, the real reason we didn't see Venom is because the CGI yep. isn't ready. Mm-hmm. When this movie was first announced, we acknowledged that the October 5th, 2018 release date was very soon. It didn't go into principal photography, didn't start filming until last October. Tom Hardy himself didn't even rap until January 27th. This movie is literally just being finished so obviously the cgi isn't ready yet right but even if it was i actually think the idea of like slow playing it building up the mystery is smart because what happened online everyone was talking about the movie and where it was kind of negatively overall but the convo was good to go because i don't think there was a lot of hype for this movie's existence beforehand Mm -hmm. venom as a character leading a movie is pretty questionable he's not an anti-hero traditionally and he's a Spider-Man villain. The best Venom stories have to do with his relationship with Spider-Man. I don't know if there's a lot there to Venom right. on his own, so they definitely they have to write that in because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't really exist on the comic page. But yeah, in the meantime, I think this is you know this is kind of a cool idea for Sony. It's funny because uh, obviously this is not connected to the MCU. This is Sony's first superhero movie in a while. That's not connected because obviously Homecoming, they shared Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling that like Tom Holland's going to like appear at the end or something. Or Venom will like, be going to New York City to go uh. see him. You saw him on TV screen. Because Sony can do that. They, they still have the right to use Spider-Man movie too. But then Kevin Feige would be like, yeah, but like that's not MCU. I don't, it just has a great potential to muddy the waters. <sighs> <laughs> That'd be very interesting. Because especially if this movie does well and it gets hyped behind like Venom and Tom Holland's Spider-Man show off and then they say that they're not gonna do it man that would be like an all-time like what if I didn't see any of the the reception to the trailer there was a lot of negative it was it was a lot of basically like how can you have a Venom trailer and not show Venom that's all it was okay you can't really tell they also have yeah they have the Black Cat Silver Sable movie in development too 
the Sony side. I really don't have an opinion on it yet because this trailer is clearly just the shots they had ready to put in a trailer. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot there to judge, but I'm confident that he'll be a better Eddie Brock than Topher Grace, you know, <laughs> by default. Topher Grace is maybe the worst casting you could have to play Venom. Yeah. So. Whether it's really the way the character works on the comics, the comics, or it's a totally different take, I couldn't care less about that. Me neither. But uh, he'll be better than Topher, no doubt. <laughs> Interesting note, though, Venom is being directed by Ruben Fleischer, who's directed three films, Zombieland, 30 Minutes or Less, and Gangster Squad. Not the best body of work, but optimistic. I'm also optimistic. I'm incredibly optimistic for Black Panther, which comes out this Thursday. And pretty much everything I've heard about so far is that this movie's going to blow our fucking minds. Something that also blew my mind was this Black Panther soundtrack. They dropped a couple of of singles off. I think it was uh, All the Stars and like pray for me and there's one other one i forgot king's dead uh all the stars this is a kendrick song and then pray for me yep and pray for me i was eh, it was pretty much a mess all the stars i thought was pretty good so i was kind of going to this album thinking eh, this could be hit or miss but kendrick behind the wheel most likely going to be a hit and he delivered it's a star-studded album a ton of features ton of uh, different sounds on the album i was wondering what was your just initial take this black panther uh, the soundtrack right yeah i think my take's pretty similar that it was just i was impressed with how uh, curated and uh, thoughtful the sound and mm-hmm. the songs were yeah you mentioned pray for me i think pray for me is one of the weaker songs as well as the song before that the travis scott one but i think overall it's it's quite a strong track list and if you look at the blockbuster soundtrack trends that we've had lately with suicide squad with member sucker for me that was the big hit total abomination the bright soundtrack recently and of course fast and furious 8 those are just like commercialized tracks cobbled together all these different artists there's no thought behind it at all it's just a money grab right right and this is not that at all it's a kendrick curated top dog supported album it's quite special and there's also a lot of moments for lesser known artists yes you know whether they're from lesser known west coast people or people from africa so there's a lot to like on it and again it really came out of nowhere i think the thing that struck me about it was there were so many through lines because you have kendrick on almost every single song and he i think just his sound in general ties it together but he really lets every single artist put their own twist on each song the vince staple track is so much different than the anderson pack track and both ops and bloody waters are fantastic songs that I would go back and listen to pretty much any day this year. But the fact that they're on the same album and back-to-back and it makes sense is just remarkable. Ops, like you said, it has the EDM-inspired sound that Vince did on Big Fish Theory, right? And then one of those guests I mentioned, uh, Yugen Blackrock, totally steals the show on uh, that song out of nowhere. Unbelievable. Right, and then Bloody Waters, the second of two solid James Blake performances. Yeah, man. James Blake back to back uh, uh, on this album. Both times I heard him, so I was driving when I first listened to it. I was like, is that James Blake? And then when he came back, I was like, is that James Blake? Made me so hyped for his gumball set. Maybe he'll actually have the comeback this year. Georgia Smith's I Am, too, I thought was really good. Stood out to me. Nice follow-up after More Life, where she kind of broke out on Drake's project. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this works with the movie but i almost have no doubt that with ryan coogler and kendrick working on this together that it's going to be phenomenal was there anything else about this album that really stood out to you that you want to touch on there's a lot of like good moments on it too i think schoolboy q is great on x like anderson pack on bloody waters i thought absol on bloody waters was quite lively and active Mm -hmm. good to see from him king's dead the first single it's been on our spotify playlist check that out links at soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod and our youtube stay plugged i think j-rock 
J-Rock is like, I saw it described as like the best Big Sean flow. And it's it's quite good. <laughs> and then Future comes in with that like really high-pitched verse. And it actually works somehow. <laughs> I thought Mozzie on Seasons was quite good. And I liked Sway Lee and Khalid's chemistry on The Ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think my least favorite songs are probably, uh, I said, the Travis Scott song, the Weekend song. And then All the Stars, actually, I'm not a big fan of. I think it's kind of half-baked. But overall, quite good. And again, really surprising. Anyway, my number one song by far is Paramedic. S-O-B-X-R-B-E. <laughs> this quartet from uh, Vallejo, California. Man, that song is a banger. I love it. I saw somebody describe them as the West Coast Brockhampton. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be yeah. the next, next like baby right here. You're going to be checking them out when they tour. And fun fact, they have a new album coming out next Friday, the 23rd. So, so we'll, stay tuned. We'll be talking about them <laughs> next week. You know, Black Panther comes out this Thursday. Uh, I'm seeing it in 3D. I think I told you last week, seeing it in 3D. going to be interested to see how that affects the way I, I, I feel about the, the movie. I have a feeling I'm going to probably love it regardless. Something I wasn't so sure about as well was Little Dark Age by MGMT, their new album. First one since 2013's MGMT. Just for a little context, MGMT dropped Oracular Spectacular back in 2007, and they broke out with Time to Pretend, Kids, Electric Feel. That album just had hit after hit on it. And then their next two albums were basically just became like way more psychedelic, moved away from the poppiness that made their first album so big, to the point where 2013's MGMT only got 4% of the plays that Oracular Spectacular has. 4% of that, that's really, really bad. So they took five years, had a hiatus, came back. MGMT is back, dude. This album- You're a fan? Oh, I am a huge fan of this album. It blew away my expectations for what, I I thought I'd find maybe two or three songs I liked. There were probably like five or six on this album that I go back to and I'm like, this is a really fun song to listen to. I know that you like Time to Pretend, you like some of their their bigger hits. What did you think of this MGMT album? So I I definitely think it's their second best album. (laughs) If you listen to all four of their their albums back to back to back, it's like you have the highs of Record Spectacular, (laughs) which is a pretty quick listen, but has very few lulls, right? And then, like you said, congratulations and self-titled. They just kind of dip down, especially self-titled, which it's not that it's bad per se, but it's just not as lively and it's not very similar to what they do. Mm-hmm. And because it's not like standout great, that difference is very jarring. Getting back to Little Dark Age, which is, I don't think it's like a Racker Spectacular. I think it's still like more like emo-y, you know, sure. like I think the subject matter of the title track definitely gets into that. But yeah. Yeah, I think sonically it's much more fun to listen to. Even Oracular Spectacular, like the songs that are popular off that, like the lyrics aren't like super upbeat. They've always been kind of emo and like been talking about True. some dark stuff. But I think what they did well with those songs is they package it in a way that people actually want to hear these messages and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like you think about what's what's the, the track on this one? I think it's When You Die. You know, it's a song that's basically like thinking about suicide and like how dying wouldn't be so bad but they package it in a way where it's like almost fun and like chipper and it's like yeah this message comes across as something that i'd listen to and probably dance to at a music festival i I really thought one of the things they did well with this too was they really like experimented throughout the album with just like different sounds to see what worked probably my favorite song off the album is james which the way that that they sing and and they go about like the the beat and, and the sonics of james are so different than probably my second favorite song off this which is me and michael which is such like a glittery like 80s pop song, which I, I really enjoyed both. And then you think about probably their best instrumental piece, which is Days That Got Away. There's so many different sounds, but they execute them all pretty well. If I had to like rate this like like your, your boy Fantano does, I'd probably give it like a, a solid like 
eight and a half or was it like a, a solid B? A so, soft eight. Yeah, a, a soft like eight high eight or something like that. Whatever he does, <laughs> really, really enjoyed this album. Yeah, I like the song T.S. Lamp. Time spent looking at my phone. As soon as I started listening to it, I was like, the instrumental is sampling some other beat. I cannot place it, but I swear I've heard that before. So I'm I'm still working on that. There's a there's a part, and it might be in that one. They almost steal something. Oh no no sorry, I'm, I'm getting confused with the Franz Ferdinand album. There's a part on, on a Franz Ferdinand album that like samples a Michael Jackson or has like a Michael Jackson oh. <laughs> uh, twist to it. And I'm like, what the fuck? I, I I couldn't place it either. But I was like, I know this is a Michael Jackson song. I did notice that these guys hate technology. Like she works out too much. Yeah, basically like a, a fucking social commentary on dating apps, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, time spent looking at my phone." Like they literally wrote a whole song about how it's yeah. a horrible thing. It's like, all right, guys, chill out a little bit. Oh, it was that song. It, it officially samples "Stranger in Moscow" by Michael Jackson. Ah, okay. There you go. Yeah, but like, oh wow, you hate 2018. Thanks. I know. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, like the only way people are actually listening to this is from Spotify. No one's buying your fucking record. Yep. <laughs> Were there any other songs that really stuck out to you? I think I'm probably going to add James to the Spotify playlist. No, I mean, I think you, you nailed them all. Again, it's only 10 tracks. Quick listen. Yeah. 45 minutes. Definitely. It has few low points. Definitely uh, nice to see them return to form. I want to see what they actually do with that, though, because they've been a reclusive duo. Four albums in 11 years is not bad at all, but they they, vote, they don't do any features, which is relatively common for indie artists, but the only time they've been featured is on Pursuit of Happiness by Kid Cudi. Yeah. Which was a long time ago. But at the same time, they're making Matt Guapo fucking samples. And oh, my God. T- t- time to Pretend is in so many movies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, Electric Feel, I mean, Frank Ocean killed that Nostalgia Ultra. Kids has been an everyone's song. So If you catch them at a festival, it'd be interesting. I saw them in 2014, right after, no, 2013, right after they, they dropped their last album. And it was like the most disappointing festival show I've been to because they were so, it was so trancy and like disengaged. And even when they played Time to Pretend, it felt like there was no energy behind it. And I was like, ah, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. But th- this album is so much different than their last two that I wonder if it will bring them back to like, you know, like a premier festival band. Definitely be interesting to see. Something else, you know, you talked about how this was a nice, pretty concise list. I think it was around like 44 minutes. The end of the fucking world, dude. That was. What a what a nice concise eight eight episode twenty minutes per episode yep. sitting four hours. So th- this is the teenage love story told by UK Channel Four and Jonathan Entwistle and Lucy Churchniak, I, I believe you pronounce it. And you talked about this before how it stars Alex Lothar who was in uh, Shut Up and Dance, the Black Mirror episode, and Jessica Barden who plays Alyssa and Alex is James. I really enjoyed this show. I think that. The show has a lot to be commended for, but I wanted to start from the ending real quick. Is this a show that you think will get a second season? It's a good question. I think Netflix definitely is pushing for one right now. I really hope they don't. They don't need to. You know, I mean, at the same time, the chemistry, the uh, personality that the two leads show on screen mm-hmm. is so strong. I'd like to see them more, but and they could easily continue from that ending. It's very easy to write out of that, but I don't know. I think that we, we say it a lot. Not everything needs a sequel. I thought this thing had a, such a no perfect ending mm-hmm. that I would be quite content if we didn't get a second season. So the reason I wanted to start from the back with this, and I agree with you, is because I think that this show and the things that made it so good are so hard to recreate, and especially when you're you're taking these these two teenagers who are definitely up and coming budding stars especially in the uk but also now stateside and you talk about how now everything needs a sequel or you know a part two or a second season however you want 
describe it. And this is one that I think you almost couldn't do a second season of because I felt like they almost caught lightning in a bottle with this. Yeah. And especially because I've never seen a show that looks at characters who experience such like different forms of trauma and actually like had it inform the characters and their decisions and the way that they interacted so well. That's like right a second season of this where they keep growing. It feels like they can only miss. I found the show incredibly charming. And I think that that's probably the word that keeps sticking in my mind. I see you nodding your head. What, what did you find most charming or compelling about the show? They break the fourth wall. They give voiceovers. You know, they even look at the camera. I think all of that just kind of manifests into that like punk kids vibe, you know, punk teens vibe. It's very pulpy. And I think it, just, it all just works together. And I think that that also kind of brings into your point about how see second season being hard to pick up is the whole backdrop or the whole whole setup for season one was that James, you know, was like psychopath, right? And right. he thought he was psychopath. Turns out he really isn't. You just be manufacturing a new conflict for the second season. And now you're doing with audience expectations uh, factored in. So I again, it, because we came in so fresh to this, most of us did, hasn't read the graphic novel, uh, so we didn't know what to expect. It'd be different to kind of take these characters and can you go with them because they go through such a have so much personal growth through the eight episodes. So yeah, I don't know if it, if it would work, but like you said, charming. I think is the perfect word just because it's a dialogue heavy show. It's a it's a conversation led show, and they just command the screen and they just chew chew on the script the whole time. So it's so fun to watch. Yeah, and you know I think the the things that make it fun is it starts out and these two are so biting as characters in such different ways like Alyssa is so externally like, vicious towards people yeah she's just an asshole <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and James so internally just like deviant and plotting the, this murder constantly and you know as it takes them through the season and things happen to them and, and they kind of grow together and, and you finally are like they finally come to confront the things that are actually like causing them to, to run away and, and to feel this way Mm-hmm. And seeing how they find such like salvation, or I don't know if salvation is the right word, but they find such comfort in each other and abilities to like break down the wall that they keep up. You go from like being like, wow, this is like intriguing because I've never seen this before, and these people are so outlandish, to being like, oh wow, these people are so like human. It's so nice to see a story where these two people find each other. It's like a, mm-hmm. it becomes a true love story right before your eyes. You don't even notice it. I thought some of the romance stuff at the end came a little contrived. I don't know if they totally nailed all of that. It's a minor quibble. I think an interesting observation I saw was that it's a story about teens, modern day teens, but there's no like presence of smartphones, Yeah, which is cool because obviously that's such a obvious and well-traveled road when you're talking about modern teens and whatnot. But there also was a, a funny recurring bit that I liked. It was just part of James's character is that because he was such an introverted, passive person that whenever anyone would ask him a question or tell him something his response was always just okay yeah i swear he he answers like 30 questions by the end of the season that way <laughs> it's really funny he's pete davidson's character on snl with the chad okay like, oh right yeah <laughs> pretty much i got pumped for a second when they finally meet Alyssa's dad his, her biological father mm-hmm. i thought it was little finger for a second dude like when they first showed him <laughs> and i was like oh devale <laughs> Like I was, I got so excited. Peter, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alyssa, please. Oh man, I would have loved that. The moment I think that sticks in my mind. There's, there's two, I guess. The, the dancing scene where you know Alyssa convinces James to finally like kind of let go a little bit and in the house. Yeah, in the house. And then also the, the gas station scene where they hold up the gas station. 
th- those two scenes are both just phenomenal. And also the way that they like toy with the gas station attendant who like wants to come with them is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like Bonnie they, and Clyde in it. Yeah, exactly. I felt like like they hit pretty much all the notes. I, I think the romance stuff hit me a little bit better than it did for you. But yeah, I really hope they don't do a second season of this because I feel like even the ending is pretty pitch perfect for who they are throughout the season. Speaking of Game of Thrones, did you notice who one of the cops was? Who one of the cops was? One of the actors. No. Who was one of the cops? It was uh, Gemma Whalen who plays Yara Greyjoy, Theon's oh, sister. Oh, shit. I, I, yeah. I kept looking at her. I was like, she looks familiar, but I didn't like mm-hmm. piece together. I did notice like in the, I think it was the second episode when they go to that, that restaurant and that guy tries to get James or right. make, make James touch him that he's in uh, Green Street Hooligans and, like, a ton of other, like, UK things. He's a very well-known, like, UK actor. But I was like, oh, that that's, like, the, the really shitty guy in Street Hooligans. But, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a pleasure. I really hope they don't make a second one just because I feel like this is one that ended pitch perfect. It seems to be resonating with younger audiences quite a lot. I mean, we're getting to this review late. We, we've had so much to talk about, so much news coming up that we kept pushing this back. We both watched it, you know, what, almost a month ago probably, right, when right after it came out basically but at that time the convo was very positive especially with younger people and it's almost like a 13 reasons why for netflix again just something that kind of came out of nowhere and really resonated with younger audiences and i mean that's the that's how netflix does it is keep throwing those darts and eventually get your bullseyes and this was one of them it's like a much better 13 reasons why oh oh, no 13 reasons why it's garbage right but it's very popular (laughs) yeah very popular got a lot of views something else that has gotten a lot of traction and i think we'll be talking about for a while uh, at least until the oscars are over i tanya directed by craig gillespie known for mr woodcock and million dollar arm fame oh yes starring marco robbie allison janney and sebastian stan uh, obviously it tells the story of uh, tanya harding's life chronicling up to and after her attack on nancy kerrigan in 1994 prior to the olympics this is one i saw about a month ago as well really what sticks with me about this movie is the fact that they told a story that I went in pretty much being like, Tanya Harding's a fucking scumbag. And I left being like, yeah, well, I guess she's not that much of a scumbag. Or I can understand her being a scumbag. And it took a story that's pretty serious and pretty sad to like think about and made it fun to watch. I really thought it was a pretty uh, outstanding achievement for a story that I didn't, I had some preconceptions going in about. I know that you had mentioned on the pod before that this movie might make you think. What was your reaction prior to and leaving this movie? Yeah, so I mean, I, shit, I think I saw this almost two months ago now. I yeah. saw this a while ago. But uh, again, another thing we've been saving, just haven't had time to talk about, but we wanted to. And we've you know, already talked about some of the award nominations it's gotten before, so check those out. Mm-hmm. Pod. The immediate reaction is that it's just such a fun a story to watch unfold because of the way it's presented, especially, you know, at the end once the actual, you know, attack on Carrion happens. You're just watching these bumbling fools tell the story and then kind of realize to themselves how dumb they are. But but like, like the thing was, it wasn't like like that fat bodyguard. Like, yeah, I couldn't that believe crazy, that that interview good. was fucking real. Yeah, and that actor is unbelievable. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm trained uh, black ops operatives uh, <laughs> taking people out before. Oh, uh, man, you YouTube that interview for, I forget that guy's name, but uh, the accomplice, Sebastian Stan, unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> like you said, it's kind of a dark and sad story. And Tanya Harding is very much a tragic person, a tragic figure. And I think that was the case even before her career got derailed by this unfortunate event and that's kind of the main criticism that you'll see of this film 
is that it takes her domestic abuse, which it shows. You see Sebastian Stan beating the shit out of her throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and it, it plays that for laughs. And I think that does rub people the wrong way, especially because I don't think it always works totally well. You know, having domestic violence be such a strong part, uh, such a big part of a black comedy, the taste is is questionable at times. But I think overall the performances and the way they tell the story makes it fun and makes it lighter. Yeah, especially, you know, when domestic violence is it's being told from the perspective of two people in this movie. And one of them, I mean, they, they both were domestically violent towards each other, but one of them pretty much denying that they did it and giving that, like, validity, especially in, like, the current state of Hollywood is somewhat problematic for sure. But there are definitely a lot of really enjoyable moments throughout this movie and moments that, like, made you laugh. Obviously, we talked about the bodyguard. I thought he was just great throughout the whole thing. But I, I thought... Especially, like, Tanya Harding just, like, being a badass on, on the ice, like, telling people to fuck off or, like, suck her dick or, or shit yeah. like that was, was hilarious. But Allison Janney, we haven't even mentioned her yet, and she really blew me away in this movie. Obviously, she's been in a ton of big things, West Wing as um, CJ. She's on, what, is Mother now, or what's it called? Mom. Mom. Yeah, she's on Mom. A show I'm never going to watch. But she's won an Emmy for, I think, like two or three times for that. Or at least once. Yeah, and she got West Wing Emmys, too. Um, so she's, she's a well-established actor. I thought this role was a hard one to land, but she now. Yeah, apparently it was written for her with her in mind. It's, it's interesting because when you think... I can't help but think about the role in terms of how I think about Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird because those are the two mm-hmm. uh, top choices for Best Supporting Actress. But uh, Alison Janney's odds-on favorite by a mile because she's won all the other awards thus far. But, yep. you know, I think the way people critique her awards case is that this is, like, easy for Alice and Janney playing this over-the-top uh, character. <laughs> and and it's like, I understand. It's just, like, it, it's not downplaying it so much as that wouldn't you rather award the more measured and thoughtful performance versus something that's over-the-top that's clearly not that hard for such a talented person. So I can see both sides to it. Overall, I mean, she's magnetic. She's electric in every scene she's in. Really funny, really harsh. She really brings home the relationship Tanya Harding had with her mother, which was so important to her early life. Yeah, and I think the character is, is obviously outlandish. I mean, it has a fucking parrot as like a her what fifth husband or something like that, she says. The moments that stand out to me and that really drove home the relationship between her and Tanya and how tragic it was were like, the moment when she went to go visit Tanya after everything had happened and she gives her a hug and she's like, mom, are you recording this? Just like how like subtle that is. Or in the restaurant when Tanya goes to talk to her before the Olympics and she's just like heartbroken and they have that like basically screaming match there. And I feel like those moments, though, obviously parts of them are, are a little bit over the top, are way more measured. And I think that that's speaks to her range in this. I think either, either one that wins is well-deserved. Lori Metcalf is a, goddamn queen in a ladybird so like if she wins I, i'm not gonna have any qualms about it this movie had a very like scorsese like feel to me at points especially like the way that it used the music in it like heart mm-hmm. dropping like when they were doing like the training mo- like montage and things like that well so much narration there's narration right. throughout the whole thing and i mean heck, even there's like the testimonial uh you know like interviewee segments and I think it's funny because, like, they, they kind of have a lot of threads with the interviews and they don't actually finish all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, some people only talk to the camera a few times. Sometimes Sebastian Stan will chime in, sometimes he won't. Yeah, I mean, overall, it kind of contributes to the later mood. But I also think the movie kind of makes a kind of obvious, not super deep, but it doesn't make an observation about class 
you know, obviously Tanya Harding came from a, not the best circumstances and she kind of had to struggle through that going through a bougie-ass sport like figure skating. Right. I, I, you kind of see that built up in her relationship and her conversations with her trainer. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And especially when she's like asking why they won't win, when she, she confronts that judge and he's like, you just like don't have the look or whatever it is. It's not for you. Yeah, exactly. Sebastian Stan, dude, Bucky. I didn't recognize him for the for the Bucky beginning. Bonds. And I was like, oh shit, it's Bucky. Fucking Winter Soldier here on, on the screen. I, I thought he was really good. Obviously, didn't get a nomination. Margot Robbie did. I think deserving, but she doesn't really have a shot. No. I, I do think it's pretty easily her best performance in her young career. I think that's not even debatable. You know, she she's good. Well, what's it up against? Harley Quinn and Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, that's really yeah. it. I mean... Unless you're a big fan of, fuck, what was that movie Will Smith called? Focus. Oh. <laughs> Unless you're a big focus head. I forgot about that. <laughs> I don't think there's many of those out there, but if you are, hit us up on YouTube. Leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, it's it's actually probably a really good sign for her career. I think, you know, especially after seeing her in Wolf of Wall Street, she was good in that, but she kind of was just like the eye candy for the movie. Yeah, she was sexualized, no doubt. Exactly. And that's typical for a Scorsese movie in general uh, with women in it. I think that the fact that she, her first like real leading role, she gets a chance to play something this this deep and, and autobiographical and get to show off her chops a bit and she gets honored for that is a really good sign for her career. Actually, she hopefully will be in another good movie uh, later this year. End of the year, we have... Mary Queen of Scots coming out with Saoirse Ronan as a title character, but Margot Robbie is the next build actress there. Oh, shit. That hopefully is great. Wrecking Crew. The only other category this was nominated for is Best Editing, which I think it probably is a pretty good shot at. They, they did a lot of effects and CGI for this figure skating stuff, which looks great. And Robbie didn't do all of that skating, really actually most of it, but her face was put on there. So yeah, commendable editing, no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the last thing I just want to say was shout out Bobby Cannavale. Oh, fuck, that's right. Yeah, he's been killing it lately. Yeah, everything he's in, he's like magnetic and fun, definitely making some good choices. So really excited for his career. I was just reading about The Irishman, the Scorsese movie coming out next year we've talked about, and Cannavale is in that in a small role. Yes. Of course I want to see him be a a mafia character, no doubt. (laughs) You know, after vinyl, I really was like, oh, shit, this guy's career is going down the tubes. And he totally proved me wrong. He, like, turned everything around, has been hit after hit. So good for that guy. But, yeah, I, Tanya, definitely a movie worth seeing. Very enjoyable watch. We're going to be talking about another movie that I think we'll both like, Black Panther, next week, along with that. uh, I don't even remember what the the band's name is, but their album's coming out this week. Car Seat Headrest? Oh, not – oh. Karsty Headrest, if I can find three hours. Wait, what's, what, are their, what other band are you talking about? Uh, the one that was on the Black Panther album. Uh, XR... SOB? Oh, no, that, that's next Friday. Oh, following Friday. Sorry. My, my bad. Also this Friday, this, somehow, the fourth season of Mozart in the Jungle is out on Amazon. That show that randomly won a few Golden Globes in its first season, but actually isn't that good. Well, that's still out in case you're a fan, but we won't be talking about it. Yeah, no way. You know, interestingly, I, I've been watching Versace On Demand, and Sad. they keep... They keep showing Atlanta previews, which starts, I think, beginning of March. And then the Americans mm-hmm. last season starts at the end yeah. of March. So I'm like, I got some fucking catching up to do before that, dude. So Yeah, week after Atlanta, Jessica Jones season two comes out. End of March, you have the Trust Show, which is the Getty kidnapping. All the money in the world, except it's a TV show from Danny Boyle. That comes out. Silicon Valley comes out early this year, March 25th. Oh my God. Uh, the Roseanne comeback is the day before the Americans. So yeah, March is busy. March can be really busy for TV at least. I don't know if there's any good movies. Well, there's a lot of movies for March too. You got Ready Player One. You got Tomb Raider. 
You shit. got uh, the Queen. Fuck, I forgot. There's a few others. Movies picking up too. It's nice to see the calendar being more spread out. Can't wait. A lot to talk about. If you want to talk to us about any of that stuff or tell us more things that we should be watching, listening to, or talking about, hit us up at NostalgiaPod on Twitter. Follow Dave at Martin Swagger, myself at She New World Peace. And also go to Spotify and search Nostalgia Best of 2018 and subscribe to that playlist. We'll be adding songs throughout the year. I already added James from Little Dark Age, Black Panther. I'm sure we'll probably add another one because that album was ridiculous. A lot of stuff this week. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to end of the fucking world. I've been working my way through Mosaic, too, so maybe oh, eventually nice. we'll, I'll get we'll, on that. we'll talk about that. Great. Um, haven't gotten to the Alienist yet, which is just, like, moving down yeah. my list of priorities slowly. That's how it goes. But let us know what you're watching in case it's not what we're talking about. i got to watch Altered Carbon still. Fuck. I know. There's, <laughs> there's too many. Anyways, <laughs> until next week, peace out. All my days, I'm